This episode is brought to you by Jinx, the superfood-powered dog kibble everyone's been talking about. See the results for yourself and try their one-month transformation. Within the first few weeks, you'll see how Jinx can help with your dog's energy, mood, and even digestion. And it's all thanks to the high-quality ingredients they use, like organic chicken, Atlantic salmon, and grass-fed beef. Try the one-month transformation today. Find Jinx in your local Walmart. But first, let's kick it off with drinking in Vancouver Parks. Now, last night, the Vancouver Park Board did a little punting of this issue. They wanted to study it a little bit more. Have a listen to this here now. This is Sergeant Aaron Reed from the Vancouver Police Department, and he was asked whether the cops are worried about drinking in parks. Here's what he said. It's hard to guess on any hypotheticals of what may happen. Uh, Vancouver's historically been a polite, behaved city. Uh, We expect it to continue that way. Our, our councils and boards who have made these decisions have looked into it, and they feel it is appropriate for our city. So for now, we will be going with those guidelines. Okay, some other municipalities in Metro Vancouver have already allowed drinking alcohol in municipal parks. Vancouver's uh, looking at a little, a little bit more, uh, leaning in that direction as well. Let's check in now with Tracy Crawford. She is the regional manager for Western Canada for MAD Canada, Mothers Against Drunk Driving. I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Hi, Tracy. Oh, hi. Good morning. Thanks a lot for doing this. What are, what are your thoughts on this idea of allowing drinking in public parks? Do you have concerns? Well, we definitely have concerns, you know, um, because there needs to be a lot more looked into for the safety of everybody in the parks. Um, you know, our first concern is, is really, is there a necessity to have open alcohol at all these different parks? Um, you know, is, is it really something that is needed. Um, we were consulted and spoke to uh, quite a few different municipalities a couple of years ago when this was first being discussed. And, well, you know, our first concerns, again, is, is really if, it, if it's a necessity. But if they are moving forward, we do have some, you know, safety precautions that we would love any yeah. mun- municipality to you know, look into and incorporate if they do allow and were, move, move forward with this project. Were you guys consulted on in this go-around? Like, did the city of Vancouver, did the Vancouver Park Board come and get your opinion on this? Uh, well, when they initially were looking at it back in 2018, we, we did. Um, we were consulted, and we did provide our concerns, as well as we did provide um, our, our sort of our top few um, safety precautions that we would want them to put in place right. to ensure that it's done and managed, you know, again, with everybody involved, the safety is being top priority. Right. When you were saying like whether this is even necessary, that's one of the things that occurred to me as well, because I think, let's face it, if, if people are having a quiet and then peaceful family picnic or whatever, I think the fact that some people might have a couple of beers in a cooler is something that's probably been going on forever without, without a lot of problems, you know? And so I'm just wondering why they have to... Do you, is, is your concern that this could encourage more drinking in, in parks? Well, it definitely, you know, could in, in, you know, definitely encourage people to drink more in in the public. Plus, as well, being very open about it. But our our biggest concern is once it's sort of allowed, people, you know, again, are driving to these parks. What precautions are in place to make sure that they're not going to get into their car after they've been able to, able to enjoy their you know drinks, get into a car because they're just not sort of planning, you know, ahead of time when they're going to a park, right? I mean, it's such a new project, it's such a new idea. Is it really right. something, you know, 
is going to, what's the safety precautions in place? And our, our biggest concern is going to be um, underage drinking, um, having people get into the vehicles after they've been consuming alcohol out in the sun. Um, you know, what, you know, that's our biggest concerns. Okay, speaking of Tracy Crawford from Mothers Against Drunk Driving, uh, there may be a perception out there that drunk driving is not as big of a problem as it used to be in the past, but what are the, what are the current numbers? What are the sort of the fatality stats like these days? Uh, well, it still continues to be one of the leading causes of criminal death right across Canada. Um, on average, in BC, um, about 70 people are killed every single year from impaired driving crashes. And that doesn't wow. include the thousands that are injured um, every day as well. So it is still a concern. Um, it's still continues to rise. Now with uh, cannabis legalization, we don't have the numbers for what that has done to, to impaired driving, but, you know, again, it's still a concern. These are 70 people that were killed by someone who chose to drive impaired. Okay, let's talk a little bit about um, how this could work. I, I take your point that you don't think it's a great idea, but municipalities obviously have the authority to do this, and it seems like more and more of them are going to allow it. So if it's going to be a reality, let's say in Vancouver Municipal Parks, what kind of rules would you like to have in there? You want like designated areas for drinking, right? Not just wide open. Definitely. I yeah. be, you know, everybody should be able to enjoy the parks and they should have designated areas where if you're going to allow it, where people can consume. So that way people who choose not to consume or don't want to be around somebody who is can still enjoy that park. Um, having designated areas as well um, sort of allows for better policing of alcohol consumption in the park. You're able to identify if somebody is underage drinking because it's designated to a certain area. Overconsumption, if someone is, is drinking too much, police are, and, and bylaws are able to actually identify those people quicker. And when you're seeing somebody go to a car, you know, it's easy, a lot more easier to identify somebody who's been drinking in a designated area and then they're heading to the car so you can see who may be dri- um, potentially driving impaired. Okay, okay, so you would like to see what some uh, signs displayed for the public like if you see somebody drunk get behind the wheel here's how to report them well we definitely there should be there should be information provided signage at um all these at all these parks to let people know what they can do to prevent somebody from driving impaired or if they have a concern with again underage drinking or someone who may be over consuming there should be signs with a bylawful uh, direct bylawful number there should be encouraging the public you know call 911 if you see something that you suspect someone's going to be driving impaired uh, again, um, underage drinking, you know, call 911, report it, get the police to be able to come come and intervene before something happens. Okay, speaking of police, we, we hear calls to defund the police, scale back the police. The police have got a lot of problems on their plates these days, especially in Vancouver, downtown Vancouver, where there's been problems recently and they're deploying more officers on the streets of downtown Vancouver. Are, are you concerned about uh, the enforcement and just kind of patrolling more police officers, more bylaw enforcement officers patrolling these areas where they do allow drinking. No, but, I mean it, okay. the, the officers will be patrolling it and bylaw patrolling it. it will be for the safety of all of of the entire community. If somebody is going to be getting into a car after they've been been drinking and they're potentially impaired, they're potentially are, are going to kill or injure somebody. So having the presence there, if, if having people to know that they're there to make sure that they're their you know their families are safe. Um, that's the whole point of it. They're not going to be going up and and you know stopping every single person who has a has as a drink. They're just there for you know yeah. safety wise to make sure the public is safe. Okay. Do you last question for you, Tracy? Do you believe that there should be public disclosure on how this is going, like frequent reports to the public on how on how uh, drinking is being managed in public parks? 
Definitely. And I think that should be on an ongoing basis. Uh, it should be tracked. Incidents should be reported with full details. So if, if this does happen, when they are going to reevaluate it, whether or not they're going to do this again next year, they actually have yeah. the data and the information from police, from bylaws, and from the public. So they, they can make a really, really good decision of, of how this actually you know, pilot project actually. You would, would, you re- would you just prefer them they don't do it at all, though, at the end of the day? I mean, if they're going to go forward with it, I think you've put, you've put forward a lot of ideas on how it could be managed, but it would, be, would it be better off from the perspective of Mothers Against Drunk Driving just not to allow it at all? I think so. I think for the safety of the public, I don't think it's ne- necessary. They've expanded a lot of the seating is- is- areas for restaurants so they have the patio, and that you can't manage, you know, the public, overconsumption, underage drinking. You can't manage... Um, people who are just drinking out in the public in 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 the open forum. So I think for safety precautions, I think it, it's a it's a better idea not to allow it. But again, right. if they do, we would really like the cities to be able to incorporate very a, a lot of very strong safety precautions. Thank you for coming on today. Oh, thank you. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about our best friends now, and that's of course dogs in our lives. Apologies to all the cat people out there, but come on, dogs are the best, and uh, we love our dog in our house, and that's why I always enjoy talking to my next guest, Dr. Stanley Korn. He's a psychology professor. He studies and writes about the intelligence, mental abilities, and history of dogs. He's written many groundbreaking, best-selling books. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hi. Hi, Mike. How's it going? It's going great. Thanks a lot for doing this. It's nice to talk to you again. Uh, I, I vividly remember reading your book, The Intelligence of Dogs, many years ago. And dogs are intelligent, right? Like maybe more intelligent than we than we think. Our dog at home, I'm sure sometimes I look at her and I think she almost understands what I'm saying to her. And I know she does sometimes. And she's a cross between a, a golden retriever and a poodle. So she's a golden doodle. Is that a really intelligent breed? Like bo- I know bo- poodles are really smart, right? Poodles are the second brightest dog in all of dogdom, and mm. Goldens are the fourth brightest dog in all of dogdom. So, I mean, you know, if, if you you got to cross over there, whether it favors mommy or daddy, you're going to get a bright dog. What's the number one intel- the most intelligent breed? Uh, the Border Collie, but you don't oh, want yeah. one. Uh, <laughs> uh, they're, they're, they're very, very active dogs, and um, uh, they get neurotic if they don't have a job to do and uh, they're clever enough to make you neurotic too so i don't usually recommend them for people who are living in the city yeah border collie number one what would round out your sort of top five what else is uh, in terms of well, intelligent I can, you, uh, uh the the top seven would be uh okay. uh the border collie uh followed by the uh, poodle followed by the german shepherd uh followed by the golden retriever uh then the doberman pincher and the little Shetland Sheepdog, and then the Labrador Retriever. So those are your top seven. Right. Why are some breeds more intelligent than others? Is it it just the jobs they've been bred to do over the years? Uh, Most of the dogs which uh, are uh, uh, most intelligent are relatively uh, modern breeds of dogs. Um, The the earliest dogs were hounds and and terriers. And... uh, uh, both of those guys uh, had work to do, um, uh, which basically involved for the hounds, uh, you know, finding prey and uh, and then uh, chasing it down, and it didn't require any human interaction. So we did, we, we weren't breeding them so that they had the intelligence to be able to to uh, 
understand what we were doing and that sort yeah. of thing. But when we became more citified, um, and uh, the dogs were sort of living in our houses and sort of sharing our lives much more so, then it became more and more valuable for us to uh, to have intelligent dogs. And yeah, and we can breed intelligence into a dog. Um, so. Um, you know, take the Doberman Pinscher. There really was a hair Doberman, and he was uh, sort of a, a, a policeman, uh, um, and um, he wanted to have a dog uh, which was um, of a certain size, uh, large enough to be, and fast enough to to run down a man and, and large enough to knock him down, but also intelligent enough to be an independent guard dog. And so in 35 years of one man's life, he basically created the Doberman Pinscher. Wow. Um, so, you know, it, and and um, if you breed for intelligence, you get more intelligent dogs. Right. The Dobermans, I guess, had a bad rap. I, I remember at one time people were scared of them and thought they were kind of scary dogs. Now the scary dog is, is the pit bull. We've been talking about the pit bull on the show here the last week, actually, after there was a, a, a fatal attack in Kamloops. Um do you think some dogs get a bad rap? What are your thoughts on pit bulls? Some people think they should be banned. What do you think? Well, um, I'm 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 of a mixed uh, 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 opinion when it comes to banning dog breeds. Oh. You know, you you can you can breed the aggression out of the dogs. Okay. So back in the 50s and 60s, as you said, you know, the the devil dogs were the Doberman Finchers. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the uh, Doberman Club in the, uh, in the U.S. Uh, looked at what was happening in the, the overall public opinion about their, their, their dogs. And they said, look, you know, we've, we've got to do something uh, about the, you know, the, these reports of, you know, attacks by Dobies and that sort of thing. Uh, or they're going to slap some kind of bad dog law on us. And so what they did was very heroic. They they passed a uh, a regulation uh, in the breed club uh, which pulled the breeding certificate of any dog uh, which showed spontaneous aggression. That that means to say the the dog you know aggressed without being provoked. Um, and. Um, so they lost a lot of dogs uh, from the breed pool, which were quite beautiful and 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 that sort of thing. But within a period of less than ten years, they they created the Dobermans that we have today, which are good, solid working dogs. Yes, if they're provoked, they will respond. Uh, <coughs> pardon, but uh, uh, but you know they're they're basically really good working dogs. But that's in North America. You see, if you go to Europe, they like their Dobermans with what they call temperamental uh, fire, which is basically slobbering beasts that eat children. Um, so, uh, you know, it, 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 it's, it's a different kind of a thing. But, but the genetics are quite remarkable in dogs. We can more or less create whatever we want. <coughs> the big problem... <coughs> Pardon me, it's not the virus. It's, it's yeah. ongoing allergies and respiratory problems. Ah. Uh, but anyway, um, uh, when it comes to the pit bulls, uh, the yeah. reason that they are so aggressive is because uh, many of them have been uh, what they call game bred. That means to say they have been bred 
um, uh, for for dog fighting. Yeah, uh, right. And and I think a lot of people don't understand that uh, there are more than forty thousand people in North America who make their full time living out of dog fighting. Wow. There's a whole dog fighting circuit going on, and there are hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, which are bet on on uh, dog fights. Gee. And uh, there are kennels which specifically breed um, uh, the the various pit bulls um, uh, for fighting. And yeah. the way that this is, this is we call this hard genetics. They breed dogs which have uh, won fights with other dogs who have won fights. Yeah. And you start to get these absolutely terrifying beasts. And uh, to, to give you an idea of just how vicious they can be, um, uh, some of these game-bred dogs, uh, when a, uh, uh, a dog has a litter, um, that litter has to be taken away from her by uh, the time the pups are five weeks of age, otherwise she'll kill them. Mm. Um, so the problem here is that these dogs, uh, these game-bred dog genes have sort of bled through uh, the population. And if we can control the breeding, um, you know, and and take appropriate actions uh, from breeders who turn out aggressive dogs, uh, then I don't think there's a need to ban them. Right. Speaking to Dr. Stanley Corrin, I, I remember, I think the last time I talked to you, I, I asked you for a few tips on, on training my own dog. I was having some trouble getting her to stop barking when, when the doorbell rings and we were never able to sort of get her to stop doing that, and that's that's the least of our, our troubles, I guess, with, with her. We, we, she's a great dog. But do you think she's older now? I mean, she's 12 years old. Can you teach an old dog new tricks? Or, like, when, when's a dog, when a dog gets older, they kind of set in their ways? Oh, yeah, you can, you can teach them. Uh, uh, you can continue to teach them uh, um, uh, most things. I mean, you just have to watch out about two things, okay? The first thing is... Is how athletic are the uh, the tasks which you're you're trying to teach the dog? Because you know older dogs get arthritic, like me, and and that sort of thing. The other thing is one of the reasons why people tend to think that older animals um, um, are not um, as trainable has nothing to do with their minds. It has to do with their senses. Uh, for varying breeds. Um, uh, when they get older, especially breeds which have um, uh, some retriever in them and um, uh, some of the spaniels, uh, the dogs uh, can start to lose their hearing. And um, so you're trying to uh, to train them, and you're giving them verbal commands, um, and and they're not responding. Well, it may well be that they are simply not hearing you very well. So if you combine your commands, not just your voice commands, but your, but but you combine them with with hand signals, right. um, then you've got a much better chance of of being able to train the dog because you know he's got to sense what it is that you're trying to say. All right, welcome back, my guest, Dr. Stanley Corrin, author of The Intelligence of Dogs from UBC. Six zero four two eight zero ninety eight ninety eight is the number to call. Star ninety eight ninety eight on your cell. Carol calling from Burnaby. Hi, Carol. Hi. Hi um, first of all, I want to say, Mike, I'm so glad you've got your own program, that you're back on CKNW. 
I really missed you all those years, and I'm really glad you're back. That's very, very kind of you to say that. Thank you. <laughs> well, we like your show. Thank you. And um, also, I wanted to say, um, we have an Australian Labradoodle. This is the second mm. one that we've had. Um, he's almost two, and um, I think it, Labradoodles are um, barkers, and I'm thinking that that's probably your golden doodle is too. That, you know, that just sort of comes with it, I, the territory, as far as I can see. Yeah, she, she But the other the, thing I want yeah. to ask Stanley yes. is that um, when we're having dinner, he um, will not leave my husband and I alone. He just sits and whines and looks right in our eyes. <laughs> and I know he wants us to feed him, yeah. but I'm trying to break him of this. What do I do? Okay, Dr. Corrin. Well, the first thing is you don't give in to those, 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 those weepy-looking eyes. <laughs> I, I mean, <clears throat> dogs have developed a technique to um, uh, to get our sympathy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, the uh, the important thing is uh, you want to get the dog so that it has a place um, uh, near where you're eating, um, and um, uh, but doesn't get any food uh, while you're eating. So um, the easiest thing to do is to take a, a, a little mat or a rug or something like that and put it near the table where you eat, and you teach the dog to lie down on that place uh, over there. You can just say, go to your place. And then the dog gets a treat. And then um, if they stay there... Um, then sort of sometime midway through the meal, you can you can give the dog a little treat, and then at the end of the meal, you give the dog another treat. So the dog lies over there, and it knows it's going to get something, but only if yeah. it stays on the mat. Okay, good. I like that. I like that method. Dawn in Port Coquitlam. Hi, Dawn. Hi, Dr. Stanley. Thank you for your wealth of information, all your books and TV shows. I'm a big follower. I know you know what you're doing with dogs. Oh, yeah. I've had four German Shepherds, and I recently put my last one in. Oh, oh, another caller calling in. I've been offered a three-year-old beautiful German Shepherd, but sadly she's only been used for breeding and kept in a kennel. She's no family, no leash training, no car rides, no dog skills, no playing, just puppies only, and that's it. What are the chances of her coming back to enjoy the dog world? Well, it's sad, but the chances are low. I mean, it, he, the the dog can recover, okay, but it's going to be an awful lot of work. And since you've got other dogs in the mix, I'm pretty leery about this. Uh, the big problem here is, is socialization. Uh, there's lots and lots of evidence which says that if a dog is not fully socialized um, uh, so that it knows how to behave around people and other dogs, um, you have to start early. So, you know, you've got a small window at the beginning, so maybe up to about 14 weeks, and then you have to keep it up through uh, the dog's age six months. Um, If you don't get that in, then it is very difficult to um, uh, to 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 get those those social behaviors back, and mm-hmm. you know if it was going to be one dog, which you know <clears throat> the only dog in the household, so you could 
um, you know, then pay full attention to, uh, there's a bit of a hope there. But you've got other dogs, and it's going to disrupt that social unit. And sooner or later, I mean, you know, I, I'm, I'm not, you know, Madam Svengali so that I can predict the future with 100%. But I would be willing to bet a good amount that sooner or later a fight will break out between oh, the dear. new dog and the other dogs. Okay, well, Don, good luck with that, and uh, I hope it works out for you. Listen, we've only got one minute left. Jim, you got to go fast. Jim in Surrey, very quickly. Hi, hi there. Um, we have two Shelties. We walk them in our neighborhood uh, regularly, and whenever they pass other dogs, they just go crazy. Like, it's just bizarre how nutty they go. How do we start the process of fixing that? Okay, Dr. Corn, we got one minute. One minute. Okay. Uh, most dogs have a reaction distance, so they'll, they'll start to react uh, uh, maybe when the, the other dogs are 20 feet away, uh, but not 50 feet away. So when you see the other dogs coming you imme- and they're out of that reaction distance, you immediately tell the dogs to sit, and you give them a treat, and then you keep them in that sit until the other dogs pass. What you're doing is you're turning uh, what might be a threat uh, into a treat machine. How about we bring you back, Dr. Korn, another day and we can bring you on for a longer period of time because we got a ton of more calls here for you that we just can't get to. Would that be cool? Sure, I'd like This episode is brought to you by Jinx, the superfood-powered dog kibble everyone's been talking about. See the results for yourself and try their one-month transformation. Within the first few weeks, you'll see how Jinx can help with your dog's energy, mood, and even digestion. And it's all thanks to the high-quality ingredients they use, like organic chicken, Atlantic salmon, and grass-fed beef. Try the one-month transformation today. Find Jinx in your local Walmart. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Talking to you, Mike. Welcome back to the show. My next guest is Sven Robinson, the former federal NDP MP. He was represented Burnaby in the House of Commons for, what, 25 years? Very long time. Made a lot of history while he was there. And he has now been named as the J.S. Woodsworth Resident Scholar at Simon Fraser University. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Hi, Sven. Hey, Mike. Great to be with you. Hey, thanks a lot for coming on. Okay, this is an interesting appointment at Simon Fraser University, especially when it uh, bears the name of uh, J.S. Woodsworth. I, I'm sure you're very pleased about that. He's a, a pioneer politician in our in our country, the uh, the founder of the uh, Canadian Common the Commonwealth uh, Canadian Commonwealth Federation, or a cooperative Commonwealth Federation, right? The forerunner of the NDP. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I'm I'm really excited, Mike. It's it's a wonderful opportunity. Um, of course, J.S. Woodsworth, Tommy Douglas were some of the, the trailblazers uh, that, that led to the founding of, the, as you said, the CCF back in 1932. J.S. Woodsworth was first elected uh, almost 100 years ago. In 1921, he was first elected, and, and he just he fought hard. Uh, in fact, uh, a lot of people don't know it, but uh, uh, he, I think there were two or three members of, of Parliament in a minority government there, and they were able to make the first push for old-age pensions in Canada. So between... That kind of work that, that J.S. Woodsworth did, Tommy's work on, on Medicare, um, 
and now to be able to join a, a great university, Simon Fraser University. I, as you mentioned, 25 years as a member of Parliament, Mike, and yeah. for all of those 25 years, uh, SFU was in the riding. I had the honor of representing the, the university. My dad was one of the charter faculty members at SFU. Uh, it's uh, it's a great opportunity, and it's an opportunity for me to learn too. I, I look forward to to meeting the students and the other faculty and staff there. Okay, it's an exciting appointment for you. What will you be doing there? Are you going to be actually teaching courses there? I am. Uh, there's, uh, I'll be doing a seminar uh, at the university. I'll be doing some lectures. Uh, I'll be uh, speaking. Uh, a number of other faculties have, have asked if I'd be willing to, to engage with them as well. Um, there's a number of specific activities that the Institute of Humanities, which is where I'll be, that'll be my home at the university, Mike. Um, the Institute of Humanities sponsors a number of, of specific events. There's something called the, the Grace McInnes. Uh, lecture, for example, uh, Grace McInnes was was just with his daughter, and SFU hosts uh, an outstanding woman to uh, uh, to give that that lecture. I'll be coordinating that process, and uh, it's um, it's going to be a, a busy year, uh, but it's one that uh, uh, and, and what a what an exciting time and a, what a turbulent time to be to be in the middle of uh, the, the, the sort of academic discussion about how we move forward as a as a country and as a and, and as a planet. Yeah, no kidding. We're going through uh, historic times here for sure. Speaking to former NDP MP Sven Robinson, just appointed to this position at Simon Fraser University. What what are your thoughts on on the sort of the current political, economic climate of our country and the world, given the challenges of this uh, pandemic? And and what will you what we uh, what do you hope to bring to this position at Simon Fraser University in that context? <coughs> Well, boy, that's a big question. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I mean, all of us have had to just uh, rethink so much of uh, some of the basic ground rules. I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I've all my life, uh, political life, certainly, I've been active in saying that some of the greatest challenges that we face are inequality, uh, and uh, and now, of course, most recently, the challenge of, of the climate crisis. And, uh, boy, the, the pandemic, the COVID pandemic, has really exposed the incredible, a couple of things. I mean, look, the incredible inequality uh, that uh, that we're facing. I mean, we're we're blessed in British Columbia, God knows, uh, with the outstanding leadership. I, I, every time I I hear Bonnie Henry and Adrian Dix, uh, I think, boy, we're we're so lucky to compare that with what's going on south of the border. Yeah. Um, but 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 we we've seen and and just the recent uh, debates, for example, and the recent discussions around around systemic racism and, uh, yeah. you know, some of the work that, that Jagmeet Singh has done, the NDP caucus, and, and others as well, uh, in pointing out some of these, these challenges. I mean, I think those, for me, are remain the biggest challenges. And if, if, if I can hopefully, uh, as part of my, my work at Simon Fraser, work with colleagues to try to explore how do we, how do we move forward and, and how do we make sure that we learn the lessons of this? I mean, what ha- what's happened in Canada and globally around, around elderly people, long-term care, yeah. It's a bloody disgrace, and yeah. uh, and so here's a chance to, for 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 us to have those discussions and and hopefully make a small contribution to the debate about um, how can we how can we move forward and, and and build a better world. Yeah, what are your thoughts on the? Uh, you you mentioned the anti-racism movement that that we're seeing right now, especially south of the border. And I know you're you're from America originally. You're from Minnesota, right? Yeah, in fact, I was born in Hennepin County. Uh, Mike, which is which was which is actually where where Floyd uh, was was killed. So yeah, that oh, kind of wow. struck home to me. My, uh, it, it's just just shocking. 
Yeah, so George, the whole George, the death of George Floyd, of course, spawned this whole movement where where you were born. And what are your thoughts on what you're seeing south of the border that right now, and, and the and the anti racism movement we're seeing in Canada as well. Well, I mean, it's it, it's just words sort of fail. The next federal, the next election, in the United States in November, that that presidential election is is going to be so absolutely critical, not just for the United States, of course, but but for the planet. Like, I mean, when you look at What's what's happening uh, in, south of the border, um, uh, and and the the denial of the reality of, of of systemic racism there, and and the celebration by by Trump of um, of the Confederate flag and so on. I mean, it's just it's horrifying. But but I think we have to also be careful here because Canada Canada's got its own lessons to learn, right? And I mean, it's particularly in terms of, of Indigenous peoples uh, in in this country. I mean, we've got. We've got an appalling track record, uh, and uh, and so I'm hoping that we won't be sort of too complacent. I, I'm hoping that we will recognize that we've got a lot of challenges as well. Uh, as I said, Chuck uh, uh, has certainly pointed out some of those challenges in terms of systemic racism and the NDP caucus here and others. Um, uh, but number one, uh, certainly, no, in, 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 in is, is is awareness, education. I know some people are. Uh, some particularly you know, people are looking at how do we uh, have better education in British Columbia? How do we ensure that our history and the history of, for example, um, anti-black racism in, in British Columbia is taught to kids? Because that, for me, is, is also critically important. Not just university. I'm going to be at SFU. That's incredibly exciting. But we've got to start with kids, with young people. That's where it really is going to make a difference. Speaking of Sven Robinson, the former NDP MP, has just been uh, appointed to a position at Simon Fraser University. We've been, uh, just in the last hour, we've been uh, following the breaking news out of Ottawa with the budget update there from the federal government of a big uh, deficit this year, $343 billion. The, the federal long-term debt is set to go over a trillion dollars by next March because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Do you have any concerns that uh, the government, that, that we're getting into too deep over into over our heads and debts and deficits for our kids? We're, we're living in, in one of the most serious crises that, that not only Canada, but that the globe has ever faced. And uh, we've got to make sure that uh, the people who are most vulnerable don't fall behind. And, and Mike, that's gonna, that costs some money. Uh, and uh, I think that we obviously there's there's concerns about spending that that money wisely. Uh, I mean, look at some of the some of the recent you know the story around 900 million to this wee charity and yeah. and and some of the the boondoggles there. So I don't think anybody's suggesting that we shouldn't we shouldn't be looking carefully at how we spend. But the reality is that politics is about priorities, and the priority right now uh, is is this pandemic and is is dealing with the. The fact that, that there's still way too many vulnerable people, and uh, uh, that's when government has got to set up, step up to the plate. They've done that, uh, and uh, I think we can be proud of, of the leadership that we've seen generally uh, in, in the country and, and, and particularly here in, in British Columbia. But, uh, you know, that's, that's what it costs. And uh, yeah. going beyond, going, moving forward, moving forward, are we going to have to look carefully at, uh, at priorities? Of course we are, but uh, what this has demonstrated to me is that um, that uh, when we face a crisis, and and it's not just the crisis of uh, the, the the immediate crisis of the pandemic, but the crisis of climate change, um, we have got the resources if politicians are prepared to spend. Congratulations on the appointment. I know that's an exciting one for you, named after one of your political heroes, and I appreciate your time today. Thanks for coming on. 
great to be with you, Mike. Thank you.